Will you open your Bibles with me as we read from John chapter 4? But as we do that, let me pray. Father God, we just come to continue to worship you, to magnify your name, to lift you up, and to, and to just be in worship and in awe. And Lord, I pray as we open our Bibles together, as we see how you have specifically revealed yourself in your word to us, Lord, I pray that indeed we would worship you. And God, I want to preach you and glorify your name. And Lord, there is no way that I could do this on my own, so by your spirit, Lord, will you help me? Uh, give me strength and the ability to preach your word. Use this time, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in John chapter 4, we're continuing on and looking at this woman at the well as this dialogue between Jesus and this woman, the Samaritan woman, continues on. We're going to be starting in John chapter 4, verse 16, which says this. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, now ha not the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on, on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, uh, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four, sorry, do you not say there are uh, yet four months then come the harvest? Look, I, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town, in verse 39, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. 
And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Word, world. And this is the word of the Lord. As we're looking at this passage, we see in verses 16 to 18 this amazing section of interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and it has been great. I really enjoy reading and studying this section as we see Jesus's reaction and how he walks with this woman and, 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 and shares and lives with her and, and, and shares the good news that he is the living water. And as we continue on in verses 16 to 18, it, it, there's also something else that seems to pop up. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Tell her, him to come here. It's amazing how we see Jesus has an intimate understanding and knowledge of the woman, even her sin. Because as the woman replies, she says, well, I, I have no husband. And Jesus actually confronts her right there and says, you're right in saying that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five, and the one that you're living with right now is not your husband. See, the woman doesn't lie, but she also isn't truthful to what is happening here. It's funny when you think about that all the time, if, especially if you have kids. Kids are great at this. Who, who took the cookie? Well, I didn't take the cookie. Did you get your younger sibling to get the cookie for you? But here the woman tries to kind of skirt the issue and kind of go around thinking that Jesus doesn't understand and know who she is. But Jesus, in verse 18, Jesus shows his knowledge of the depth of her soul. He sees her secrets. And Jesus confronts this woman with her sin. And not because he's mean, but simply because he loves her. Not only that, but she, he, Jesus also knew her sin. Because he knew her sin, Jesus knew that her sin stood between her and the salvation that would come, the living water. Jesus knew her sin and how she had, to, how she had been filling her life with all of those empty cisterns. She kept on trying to pour water into empty, broken, sorry, broken cisterns and, and, and was not finding satisfaction in anything. She was trying to find satisfaction in all sorts of things, but Jesus knew the very thing she was trying to hide. You can't come to Jesus without your sin being confronted. Notice that you must bring the issue of sin into any sort of offering or, or any sort of telling of the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus did, we can but must bring up the issue of sin in our offering of God's salvation. How often do we kind of hide away from sin and talking about sin, not only with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also with those who are desperately in need of the living water? How do people know that they need living water if they don't see the need? And they see the need when they're confronted with their sin. Let's think about this together. If sin was so important that he, that God sent his only beloved son into the world to deal specifically with sin, 
If sin is so great a barrier between God and man that only the precious blood of Jesus Christ could even remove it, And if Jesus was so committed to the salvation of sinners that he was willing to go to the horrific length of dying on the cross for you and for me, how dare we try to cover it up? How dare we? As some sort of embarrassment to us or some sort of impediment to the success of Christ's church. Whenever we try to cover up sin, it always gets us into more trouble. It's like um, sweeping, and you're trying to hide the dust, so you kind of kind of sweep it under the carpet, they say. We need to sweep it under the carpet. You know what happens when you keep sweeping things under the carpet? That ball gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you begin to trip and fall. We live in a time and an age where great, what we perceive as great men of God were hiding sin. And it has come out in the open. Jesus comes and he says, no, you need to confront that sin. In order to come to Jesus, you need to confront the sin. You need to expose it. And how dare we try to cover up that topic of sin as some sort of embarrassment to us or, or impediment to the success of Christ's church. You can't come to Christ without your sin being confronted. Bonhoeffer, a, uh, a Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a German pastor. He died in World War II uh, after spending many years in prison. said this, Chief grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Chief grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Chief grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This is why we even spend time in our worship service to have times of confession and assurance so that we are confronted with our sin. When we read those Bible verses, we should be confronted with the reality of our desperate need of a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we switch from just that and we also focus on assurance because we're saved by grace and grace alone. But we need to understand that in order to come to Jesus, we need to be confronted with our sin. How could we sing the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, and sing those words, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me, without truly understanding the wretchedness of our sin? The grace of God becomes more amazing when I realize how much I desperately need it. So Jesus comes to this woman, and he confronts the woman with her sin. Uh, Go get your husband. I don't have one. You're right, you don't have one, because you can't hide anything from Jesus. He's God. Like, how often do we kind of go through life and try try to hide things just from people, and then we try to do the same thing to the God who created the universe? It doesn't make any sense. It's not, it doesn't make any logical sense, but we're all guilty, myself included, of doing it. And Jesus comes and says, you're right, you don't have one, but you've been with five, and the one that you are with now is not. We have to understand what we've been saved from. It's God's sovereign love being poured out on you. 
the fact when you are in Christ, you have been saved by his grace. The gift is his grace. It is a sovereign love. It's not some haphazard, reckless love. It is sovereign. It is chosen. And he's choosing to pour it out on you. Like, just imagine, like, the, what's that song? Waves of Mercy, Waves of Grace, that old worship song that used to be really popular many, well, I don't know how long ago. But it's waves when you start reflecting upon this. Ephesians 2 a says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Or Romans 5 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Titus 3 4 to 5 it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We must preach the full gospel. We have to. Not just the cheery, sentimental, sentimentality, but the true and the bad news of sin for which Christ paid such a great cost. We must allow God's law to slay us so that Christ's gospel will bring us to life. You can't come to Jesus without your sin first being confronted. You just think about it, really, especially in our Western context. Life is good. Life is so good. And when you come to people and say, hey, come to Jesus and your life will get better, well, if your life is already good, why do I need Jesus? There are many ways that someone can be convicted, but God exposes us to his word in many different ways. Maybe through a sermon, maybe through friends or family over coffee. Maybe it's from reading, uh, actually reading the word of God. Maybe it's through a YouTube video. I heard the other day of how God used YouTube to call somebody, I know this person, called them to himself. YouTube. Who thought that? But there is only one way for you and I to respond when confronted with our sin. And that is repentance. But also notice how Jesus handles the matter of sin. Not only does he confront this woman, but notice how he handles it. See, Jesus' example shows us that we should exercise care in bringing people to the conviction of sin. It means that don't be a jerk, essentially. We must confess our sin, repent, and believe in Jesus. This isn't just something for the person who's first coming to Jesus, but this is also for the veteran Christian who faces their sin. A true Christian, Christian is a repenting Christian. The true Christian is the one who is quick to confess sin and then appeals to the shed blood of Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness and who follows through on that repentance with a fresh resolve to walk in the way of faith and holiness. But as we continue on, this woman moves forward. As as a woman begins to realize who she is, you can see this progression happening, right? First First Jesus is a man, now he's a prophet, and then we get into this thing about Messiah. And Jesus says we have to worship both in spirit and in truth. 
as he continues on in verse 19, because the woman sees that Jesus is a prophet. And the only reason why that she sees that he's a prophet is because of how he confronts her sin and exposes all of that darkness, all that dirtiness, and, and, and with a big flashlight. And then he comes with this question, an age-old question that has always been a dispute amongst the Samaritans and the Jews in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. See, when the woman asks where people should worship God, the woman asks whether her people, the Samaritans, or the people of Jesus, the Jews, are right. And I just love how Jesus comes along and he answers this question. In his reply, he almost sidesteps it. He almost says that your question is irrelevant. It's an irrelevant question. Because Jesus begins to point to something that is beyond, that something has come, that something has changed. As he says here in, in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, and so is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Why is it here? Because Jesus is here. And with Jesus enters in a new covenant. Yes, the Jews are right to worship in Jerusalem. You notice how he doesn't back down from the truth. Yes, you are, they are right to worship in Jerusalem. Because God has told them to do that. In Deuteronomy, we see that. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, and many other texts talk about how Israel is to worship Yahweh at the place where he would choose. But in this passage, at this time, Jesus announces that something is going to be changing. That some, there's going to be a movement. Look, out, look at how great Jesus is. Who else but Jesus could declare that a commandment of God had expired? Who is Jesus? Who else but Jesus could do this righteously with no, with no sin, with no getting uh, rid of God's authority, but with God's approval, with the result that the standard for obedience worship shifts from what God said in the Old Testament to what Jesus says in the New Testament. What is John trying to get us to see, the writer of this passage, what is he trying to get us to see? We need to understand that God's authority is enacted in Jesus as the Word who is God. John 1.1. 1, 1. See, when we see this, we see that there is no conflict between Jesus and God. Jesus exercises God's authority to declare what, that the time has come for a fundamental change in the nature of worship. No longer will worship be tied to a specific location like Jerusalem and in the temple. But Jesus, but God is seeking for himself a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. No longer is worship tied to a geographical location, but tied to his people, who he has called by his grace. True worshipers will worship him in this way. How do you get to be part of this true people? John 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit. In life. The only way that you can be part of these people who will worship God both in spirit and in truth is by having a renewing of your heart, which is only done by the Holy Spirit. 
And as God changes your heart, as he calls you to himself, he does call you into a local church where you gather together to worship him. It's one of the reasons why I really miss worshiping with you. To hear you voices and to, to hear you sing, to hear your prayers. But here's another thing, though. If you are seeking happiness, if you are seeking to be satisfied, if you're trying to be all any of those things, see, God comes and he seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. See, many claim to seek truth. Many claim to seek a higher sphere of existence. They strain and grasp for something to ease the ache and satisfy the longing. But Jesus speaks here in verse 23 of people's finding supreme joy and celebrating the greatness of God in spirit and in truth. If you want to be, quote-unquote, happy, you need to fulfill your purpose, and your purpose is to glorify and worship God. And what does she, as, is, as we continue on verse 25, what is she to make of this man? How is she to comprehend all that is said? In verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. What she's saying here, maybe she's trying to fish for a reaction coming from her question in verse 20, but either way, Jesus comes right out boldly and says it. She says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. He is the Messiah. And he is to be identified with the one who reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush, the I am. In spite of all of the shady circumstances of this woman showing up to get water in the middle of the day and talking to a man and a Jewish man, no one questions this, as you see in verse 27 to 30. And I think it's an example for us, too. Look at this. Look how Jesus engaged everyone according to the two greatest commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Uh, and I think we struggle with this as a people because in our society, we have completely and utterly changed the definition of love. If I love someone, I will let them do exactly whatever they want. I'm, I'm okay with that. But Jesus, out of his love, not only for God, but for his neighbor, actually not only confronts her, but also tells her of the living water. See, Jesus is our example of loving God and loving our neighbors, one that we are called to follow. And, uh, to follow. We should love everyone we encounter, seeking their best instead of what we can take from them. See, Jesus, throughout this passage, loves this woman. There's no greater example. In that, be reminded of how Jesus handles her sin. Love, true love, isn't okay with sin. It's not. If I'm in a community group, which we have, and I see my brother constantly in sin, maybe it's something subtle, maybe he's a gossip, but I, I, I don't want to confront him, right, because I love him. I, I, I really just kind of, I just, I love him. Really, you're actually saying to yourself, I just don't want to rock the boat. If I truly love him, I will 
suck up my uncomfortability with that situation. And I will, with humility, go up to my brother and say, brother, I really think you're struggling with gossip. You need to address that. The flip side is, is that that individual, if they're truly saved by God's amazing grace, if they have a heart, a new heart, they will take that and actually say, brother, you're right, I am struggling. Will you walk with me in that? If we're truly to be emulating Christ, we need to emulate Christ. The command to love your neighbor flows from the loving God, and to love God is to see him as holy. God is spirit. His worship is a matter of spirit, not a physical location. And we're called to worship him in spirit and truth. And he's calling a people to worship him in spirit and truth. And as he's calling people to to worship him in spirit and truth, you paint this picture as the woman, she leaves her bucket. She walked all the way down to the well to get water, interacts with Jesus, and she leaves the water, the bucket there, and she goes to town. She's not only admits her sin as she talks with the people around her in this, in this city, but she asks a very important question. Is this man the Christ? And as the Samaritans make their way to Jesus, the newly returned disciples of Jesus urge him to eat the food they went over to get. But Jesus isn't hungry. Why isn't Jesus hungry? He was tired. We saw that back in, in, in verse 6. Jesus was weary from his travel. Why is he not hungry? See, when we look at Matthew 4, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, and Satan's saying, hey, Jesus, you're hungry, right? It's been a couple days. You need to eat some food. And Satan says, hey, turn these stones into bread. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus points to that, what he's saying here in verse 32. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And that food is to do the will of the Father. I just love how Jesus uses every opportunity he has to teach because he explains what this food is in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what does this mean for us? At one level, Jesus is unique as the one sent by the Father, and his work can be accomplished by no one else. But at another level, those who know Jesus, those who have trust him, must also follow his example. See, those who follow Jesus and obey the Father can expect to experience this kind of nourishment. See, it's no secret that I'm Uh, I have said this before, and people don't believe me, but I'm a fairly shy person. It takes a lot of me to go up and talk to someone. Like, I'm standing here, and I'm reflecting as I talk about the first time I met Peter. And remember, Peter's a lot more outgoing than I am. He'll come up and talk to me. Remember, we met at the Feb Central conference a few years ago, a couple years ago. And I remember thinking, I don't talk to strangers. Um, Hey, Peter, I don't necessarily like talking to people I don't know because I'm shy. And one of those aspects was when I was in high school, uh, I grew up going to youth group, and as a youth group goer, attender, you know what we always got stuck with was handing out flyers in the community. Without fail, we were the ones doing it. Or caroling. It was always the adult's great idea. Hey, let's go caroling. But nobody ever asked the kids, okay? I never enjoyed it. 
but knocking on people's doors and like saying, hey, how are you doing? We want to see, uh, it wasn't me. But I remember uh, when the first lockdown happened, I had this sudden uh, conviction that I need to actually reach out to my neighbors. And here I am, the shy little person I am, and I'm walking to these people's doors, which I don't know, and I'm knocking on their doors, which maybe 15 years ago I was like terrified of doing. There was an amazing blessing that came out of that. An amazing blessing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. We will be happy when we obey. As, Jesus, as, as, as he continues on, he's talking about uh, reaping and sowing. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 9. So we are disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, right? We have that plastered on our wall. But that's, that, that work is done when God takes our witness of who he is and what he has done. Not perfect witness, just a witness. We are the sowers. We sow the good news of Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one who reaps. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 8, he says, he, Paul comes along and he says this, when, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are all God's fellow workers, who are God's field. You are God's field, God's building. Our job is to scatter the seed. Here Jesus is actually addressing the sower as John the Baptist. But we, much like John the Baptist, are the ones that sow. We can't cause anything to grow. Have you ever done gardening and you think you've done it all right? You put manure in, you watered it, and then still nothing is growing? We seem to have this problem every year in my house. I don't know what we're doing. But here Jesus says, that's our job. Our job is just to sow. And we do get to reap the benefits of that and being obedient to who God is. Because as we see later on in 39 to 32, as, as, as this woman goes and she goes into her town, she leaves her water, she goes into town, and she tells everyone, hey, is this the Christ? They immediately start flowing out. And, you can, and Jesus picks, paints this picture. Behold, it, it is white. And you can picture all these people coming out of the town and, and walking down to the well. And they're all just coming down. And, he, and he's, point, he's getting his disciples to look and say, Look, the fields, they're ripe. The seeds, they've been growing. Not only that, they've been growing in a group of people that the disciples probably did not expect this to happen. But because someone had faithfully sowed the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ, God causes it to grow. Now the fields are ripe. See, let's walk this through again. Starting in verse 16, Jesus confronts the sin of the Samaritan woman. That's what causes her to recognize Jesus as a prophet. It's out of this that the woman goes and tells her community, her city, her, her friends, her family, what we see in verse 30, and provided the contents of what she told her fellow Samaritans in verse 29. Her testimony is mentioned again as many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of it. 
Because of this testimony, the Samaritans desire more of Jesus. So he stays two more days with them. And the Samaritans believe because of the remarkable power Jesus demonstrated in telling the woman all she ever did. Our job is to sow the testimony of what God has done in our lives. Look how great my God is. Look what he's done in my life. I was a sinner, and I needed, and I was grasping at, at, at smoke, as a song says. I was, I was filling broken cisterns with water. I was never satisfied. I, I was broken. In desperate need of being saved, look what Jesus did for me. And out of that, God uses this. A testimony of Jesus is great, but it is nothing compared to being exposed to Jesus. Because as we see here in verse 41, the woman brings the people to Jesus through her testimony, and many more believe because of his word. So what do we do with all of this? How do we handle it? I know it's a big passage. In short, you can't have Jesus if you want to keep your sin. Think about the goodness of God. Dwell on what God offers in Christ. Remember how God has drawn you to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. You can't have Jesus if you want to keep your sin. You can't hide your sin from Jesus. You can't trick him. At one level, the Samaritan woman spoke the truth even as she knew that under the surface was this rot of falsehood. She had no husband. True, but she had had five. And the one she had at the moment was not her husband. What sins do we speak or act in in an evasive way? You know, we often talk about how great food is, for example, right? Baptists do a good potluck, right? Sometimes I wonder, though, for some of us, and myself included, we're hiding a sin called gluttony, right? We can make fun of it, we can joke about it, but at the end of the day, it's still a sin against a holy God. Christ died for that. Jesus is not... to be fooled. He sees and he knows. He will confront us and we will have to confront our sin. We will either wallow in our sin or leave it behind as we drink the living water that Jesus offers. You can't have Jesus if you want to keep your sin. The choice seems so obvious in the, in the abstract, but it's impossible without the regenerating grace of God. When God, through the Holy Spirit, gives us that regenerating grace, we become true worshipers. It's then that we worship the Father in spirit and truth. If you are seeking happiness, you need to know that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Many claim to seek truth. Many claim to seek a higher sphere of existence. They strain and they grasp for something to ease the ache and satisfy the longing. Jesus is the one who satisfies. He alone is the one that makes it possible for us to do what we were created to do, which is to worship God. And why do we worship him? We worship the Father because he sent the Son as the life-giving water. We worship the Father because he has transformed our hearts into obedient vessels of his will. To obey is to worship, 
And worship is to the soul what water is to the body. I look forward to worshiping with you next Sunday. One commentator put it this way. Doing God's will fills the body. Transgressing God's commands leaves us empty. Doing God's will makes us strong. Sinning against the Lord leaves us weak. Doing God's will increases optimism and joy. Committing inequity leaves us deflated and depressed. You can't have Jesus if you want to keep your sin. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for today and the chance we have to worship in this way. And God, we do look forward to the day when we can worship uh, together, Lord willing, next week. Uh, But God, I pray that we would see your example, that we would indeed be a people that worship you in spirit and truth. But we can't do that if we keep ignoring the sin that is in our lives. But also, Lord, I pray that as we go out into our city, as we go into our workplaces, as we interact with family and friends, God, I pray that we would be bold with the gospel, that you died for our sins, but not only did you die, but you rose again. May we give the full gospel. May we not try to hide it and try to be your PR team, Lord. May we just be bold with the good news of Jesus Christ. And may we rest in the grace that you have given us through your son, Jesus, in your name.